Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun for our rerun today. I wanted to listen back to an episode about white supremacy from last year. This is before Charlottesville and the alt-right. This is just talking about the rise of white supremacy in America for... Who who could say why? Uh, But, you know, it's an issue I've been thinking about recently as I prepare another new episode on the topic that I think is going to have more emphasis on how to talk to people about it. So today's rerun can be a bit of a primer on that. Uh, It does touch on that subject for sure. Regarding how to talk to people about white supremacy, what we need to be able to get through to people is just to get them to understand what the term means, because we are way beyond talking about people in white hoods. You know, it's better to think of white supremacy as a system that affects everyone. So to give you a taste of what I've been thinking recently, uh, here's a concise little analogy for you that you're welcome to use. To say that someone is helping to uphold the system of white supremacy is no more an accusation that they hold hate in their heart than to say that someone who supports capitalism must be rich. There are a lot of poor people out there who love capitalism, and there are a lot of people out there who think of themselves as completely unbigoted people but who don't realize that they are supporting a system of white supremacy. Now, of course, the difference is that the poor people who love capitalism know they love capitalism, while most people have no idea that white supremacy still exists outside the alt-right, maybe. Uh, And, you know, if you think about it, that's a pretty great place to start, you know. If those people can learn what we mean by a system of white supremacy, there's a good chance that many of them will be as disgusted by it as we are. And we can find common ground on what is otherwise a contentious issue, I think mostly based on miscommunication. Uh, So a lot more on that in the next new episode. Uh, For now, a look back at where we stood around a year ago at this time. As for members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today in which Amanda and I discuss what the film The Graduate presciently pointed to as the future plastics. The future is now. Uh, We look at our overconsumption of plastics and the solutions to turning off the flow of plastic from both the personal and public policy angles, as well as pointing out how the two are actually connected. So to hear that and for access to all of our past and future members episodes, and of course to support the work that goes into this show, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, On the Media, The Young Turks, and Counterspin. The so-called alt-right is already pretty unhappy with Donald Trump. And now when we say alt-right, what we really mean is the hateful fringe of the United States population. Those folks, the folks who helped to launch Donald Trump's political career and helped to put him in office, are very mad right now because they're afraid that they may have also been conned, like the rest of middle America, into believing that Donald Trump was actually a white supremacist. So they have come out and said, if Donald Trump does not stick firmly to those white supremacist teachings that he espoused during his campaign, there will be a full-on revolt from the white supremacist community. And this is coming from people like Mark Weber, Jared Taylor, David Cole, 
all of whom run some form of a, a different media outlet aimed at either denying the Holocaust, at trying to expose some sort of Jewish Zionist uh, uh, control of the country, or just flat out saying that uh, white people are the best people. Uh, those are the guys right now who are so mad that Donald Trump appears to be backtracking on all the white supremacy he threw out during the campaign. And what this story really tells us is that you cannot make the argument that Donald Trump won the election because he spoke to middle America and addressed their fears. That played a part of it. But the biggest thing that put Donald Trump into the White House is racism. And we see that. We have people out there who are angry because Donald Trump is currently not being racist enough. They thought they had a guy in their pocket who was going to be everything that they were except powerful. And now they're angry. So you cannot logically make the argument that Donald Trump won only because he was able to speak to this white working class that was struggling in America. Again, that played a role in it, but you cannot deny the role that the white supremacist played and you cannot deny the rhetoric that Donald Trump espoused during the campaign. He was very clear about his hatred of Muslims, very clear about his hate, uh, hatred of people of color. That is who Donald Trump is. That's what these people wanted in a president, and that's why they flocked to him. Now, again, that's not saying that all Trump supporters are racist, but there's an argument to be made that all racists are Trump supporters. Two groups, not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're there. And so the next time you hear someone tell you that, no, 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 Donald Trump supporters aren't racist. He's just the populist guy. Show him this story. Show him Rory Carroll's work in the guardian about the white supremacists who are planning to revolt violently if necessary, if Donald Trump doesn't stick to his white supremacist talking points. We think a lot these days about dueling realities, red states versus blue, a nation cleaved in half. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, ever since the Civil War ended, much of the South continues to see that conflict as a noble struggle of honor and self-determination led by heroic figures. Today, that perspective takes the form of what some historians call the cult of the lost cause, an ongoing narrative battle that mythologizes the Civil War by obscuring our nation's shameful past. This cult had one goal and one goal only, through monuments and through other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. That's New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu speaking last week to mark the removal of four of the city's monuments. After fierce opposition and a multi-year legal battle, New Orleans no longer hosts statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Generals P.G.T. Beauregard and Robert E. Lee, and an obelisk exalting the Battle of Liberty Place, 
a historic racist attack. Landrieu described the significance of these monuments in the starkest terms. These statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. And after the Civil War, these monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. They were erected purposefully to send a strong message to all who walked in the shadows about who was still in charge in this city. And they didn't yield their ground without a fight. Protests erupted in New Orleans when the city decided to remove the monuments. Wearing masks to protect their identities, crews worked through the night to avoid large-scale protests. Security measures, including bulletproof vests, had to be taken to protect the workers who have received death threats. Malcolm Suber is a historian and co-founder of Take em Down NOLA, a group that aims to sweep New Orleans Confederate memorials into the dustbin of history. He says it's part of a decades-long struggle by the black community to tell a truer story of the city. Suber traces the movement to 1954, when black parents, students, and teachers protested the celebration of John McDonough Day. McDonough is thought to have been the largest slaveholder in antebellum New Orleans and endowed many of the city's public schools, schools that, of course, were segregated. The little black kids would have to bake in the sun while the white kids were laying flowers on the bust of John McDonough. The black community called a boycott, and it was 100% effective. This was the first public protestation of these white supremacy monuments, and it just snowballed from there. When Suber moved to New Orleans in 1978, there were dozens of public schools named for slaveholders. Eventually, his group persuaded the school board to allow parents to vote on new names, and his group had another big victory in the 1980s. We got permission from the highway department to remove the white supremacy monument, and that monument, of course, was one that commemorated the Battle of Liberty Place, so-called. Now, that was a brief victory. You got that monument taken down, but then a few years later, the city put it right back up, and then it was finally dismantled again in the latest round of removals. But this wasn't some anodyne monument to the heroism of Confederate troops or leaders, the Battle of Liberty Place was another beast altogether. So basically, a group called the White League, which was made up of Confederate veterans and the sons and daughters of the rich white slave-owning class in New Orleans, proclaimed themselves openly as a group that was bent upon restoring white supremacy in Louisiana. In September of 1874, they launched a coup d'etat against the government of the state of Louisiana and went into battle against the Metropolitan Police Force, which was an integrated police force, had black and white police officers. Fourteen years later, in 1871, they decided to dedicate a monument to that event. And in 1905, they added a plaque to that monument People in the black community have always called that the white supremacy monument, and the white people, of course, call it the Battle of Liberty Place monument. Over 160-some years, people have come to believe that in building these monuments, they are commemorating something that is not, as you characterize it, you know, white supremacy, but something larger and greater, such as an entire way of life. 
How have they come to be so deluded about the nature of the Civil War and of slavery? Well, we, of course, know that the Civil War was fought on behalf of the plantation owners, but it was fought by ordinary white peasants, basically. And so in order to buffer and to explain to people why so much blood was shed in the South during the Civil War, they had to make a myth that what they were fighting for was not, in fact, the enslavement of African people, but it was something had to do with home and self-determination for the South. That myth grew and grew and grew, and it grew in the context that there was no real suppression of the planter class after their rebellion and treason against the United States government. Anywhere else in the world, if you had raged war against the central government, not only would you have been stripped, but many of you would have been executed. The rest of you would have been put in jail, and all of your symbols would have been suppressed. But we had the very opposite of that occurring in the South, because, as I always say, we won the battle, but we lost the war. And the war grew up among Southern historians to pretend that the planter class in the South, they were fighting to protect the honor of the South, rather than they they were fighting to protect their ownership of chattel slaves. Mayor Landrieu gave a speech on the occasion of having these things torn down that was most eloquent. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the scales fell from anybody's eyes if they said, oh, for goodness sakes, of course, now I understand why these are toxic, not only to black Louisianans, but everybody? Well, there has not been one member of the white ruling class that has come out in support of taking down these monuments. They are so caught up in the myth of these statues and so protective because it was their family members who paid to put these things up in the first place. And so they see this as part of their heritage, but they are so blinded by white supremacy, their attitude is, We run this city, this is our city, and we do what we want to do, and you just got to grin and bear it. Now, when the statuary disappeared, it's not as though you and the rest of Take Them Down NOLA put the mayor on your shoulders and walked through the city shouting for he's a jolly good fellow, hip, hip, hooray. You're not really satisfied with this gesture. How can you just take down four when we got hundreds of street names, school names, and statuary dedicated to white supremacy and the Confederacy? We're not interested in tokens, and we won't be satisfied until all of those are done away with. This is what I raised with Mitch two years ago. I said, listen, if we take down one statue, the rich whites who run the city are going to be pissed. If you take down two, they're going to be pissed. So since they're going to be pissed no matter what you do, go ahead and do the complete job. Let's get this (laughs) over and get this behind us. I understand you run tours in New Orleans called Hidden History. Yes. What do you show people about the black experience? Well, we talk about the entire development of the slave trade here. We talk about the contribution of the African people in the building up of the city. The African people were the workforce. They were the carpenters. They were the iron workers. They were the people who did all the cooking and the cleaning. We just are an answer to the other chamber of commerce type 
tour, which talks about the glory of New Orleans as being one of the richest cities in the world during the antebellum period. Their romanticism is about the enslavement of African people, and we talk about the struggle of African people against enslavement and the fight for equality. When you give this tour, is there one site, one story that you want people to have etched into their memories? Well, we go to a site on um, Royal Street, Cafe Maspero. Cafe Maspero used to be called the Slave Exchange. And they have a plaque on the outside of their building that says this was one of the sites where people were sold. When I first moved here in 1978, it was not just called Cafe Maspero. It was called Cafe Maspero Slave Exchange. A white friend of mine invited me to go to lunch there. I said, why in the hell would I want to eat in a place that sold my people that I was on the menu? So that is one of the sites that gives a real example of the kind of narrative that is presented by the ruling class of New Orleans, and and we like to talk about that. An interesting thing happened after Katrina. The hotel owners decided that they were going to replace the black hotel workers with Hispanics. And basically the tourists had a fit because the tourists come to New Orleans to see black people entertaining them, serving them, waiting on them. Be subservient like in the old days. Yes. They said, we want to see some Hispanics. We can go to Houston. And in many ways, that reflects the uh, society that, that has been carved out and built here in New Orleans. Steve Bannon is chief advisor to the President of the United States, and often he's called racist. Uh, He bragged about how uh, Breitbart, the website that he ran, was the home of the alt-right, that's for white supremacists. And and almost everyone agrees to that, except some in the alt-right. Some in the alt-right are proud of being white supremacists, and others say, no, that's slightly unfair. I mean, uh, we're Judeo-Christian supremacists, we're supremacists of different ilks, etc. Okay, so. Is Steve Bannon really racist? Well, we might settle that today because Paul Blumenthal and Huffington Post did some wonderful research. So first, he noticed that Steve Bannon kept talking about this thing called the Camp of the Saints. Let me give you Bannon's course on it and then we'll tell you what the Camp of the Saints is. You're gonna wanna know, okay? So he says, back in October 2015, Bannon does. It's been almost a Camp of the Saints type invasion into Central and then Western and Northern Europe referring to immigration there from uh, from uh, the non-European parts of the world. He said again in January 2016, the whole thing in Europe is all about immigration. It's a global issue today, this kind of global camp of the saints. One more, uh, again in January 2016, it's not a migration, it's really an invasion 
I call it the camp of the states. And it goes on and on and on, constant reference to camp of the states. I just gave you three to give you a sense of it, okay? And it is not immigration, it's an invasion. So what in the world is this thing? It turns out it's an obscure novel from 1973, it's a French novel called The Camp of the Saints. And it is about um, an invasion of the white world and the end of the white world when a non-white people come to Europe. Oh Wow. That's interesting. Now, this is apparently popular in the alt-right. It's been popular in the far right for a long time in Europe and America. Very rich right-wing philanthropist, fun to reprint this from time to time. So even if it's not making money, they want to subsidize this kind of propaganda. So, well, okay, what's in the book? Well, they went and asked Stanford University French professor about this and they're familiar with the book and they explain it this way. This book is racist in the literal sense of the term. It uses race as the main characterization of characters. It describes the takeover of Europe by waves of immigrants that wash ashore like the plague. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. It's about to get worse. Back in 1975, Kirkus Reviews did a review of this book when it first came out. Here's how they described it. They said, the publishers are presenting the camp of the saints as a major event and it probably is. In much the same sense that Mein Kampf was a major event. Damn. Okay, wow, wow. I'm gonna tell you the plot in a second. You'll make up your own mind. One last quote from a reviewer. In this case, it's actually a political figure, Linda Chavez. She worked under Ronald Reagan, she worked under George W. Bush, deeply conservative, deeply right wing. Nonetheless, she says about the book, because it is true, quote, it is a really shockingly racist. And to have the counselor to the president see this as one of his touchstones, I think says volumes about his attitude. Now, I, I, I never heard of this before. And I read the, those quotes about the reviews before I knew what the plot of the book was. I was like, shockingly racist. I don't know, it's after covering the news for over 20 years, after covering these guys for a couple of years, hard to shock me. So let's see if it's actually shocking. Well, it turns out the plot of the book is about uh, 800,000 Indians are um, coming to France as immigrants, as refugees, because they're impoverished. They're led by a figure uh, that is called the turd eater. He literally eats crap in this book. He is the leader of, the, of in this case, Indians, but really non-Western world overall. Okay, now then the book says, all right, are the French going to have the courage to do the right thing? Oh, Okay, what's the right thing? To murder all of them. No, no, not to block the ship and not let it come into France because they're worried about the population or the environment or whatever. No, 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 no. The right thing in the book is to murder 800,000 immigrants who are impoverished and seeking help. Wow, wow, you know what? That is actually shockingly racist. So the main hero of the book um, is a right winger who murders immigrants and also murders people on the left who try to help immigrants. That's the hero of the book. Okay, um, I'm gonna go back to Blumenthal here for a de- description of some of the things that happen in the book. He says, poor black and brown people literally overrun Western civilization in this book. Chinese people pour into Russia. The Queen of England is forced to marry her son to a Pakistani woman. <gasps> Egats. The mayor of New York must house an African-American family at Gracie Mansion. 
look at that worldview. To them, having black people in at Gracie Mansion is like unthinkable. Like he's forced to house them. Well, as it turns out in real life, he's not forced to house them. He houses them anyway because he's married to an African American, and his family is obviously African American. So. Wow, that came true, what a horror story. But if you're deeply racist, that is a horror story. To be forced to marry a Pakistani woman, Oh my God, and to house African Americans. This is what Steve Bannon thinks is such a great book in his guide for immigration. These people are nuts. I'm not anywhere near done. <laughs> Get a load of this, this explains a lot. They refer to the left that actually believes that we shouldn't be racist and that we should help people across the world as their culturally cuckolded white supporters. I don't know if that's where this whole cuck craze began, but that is a quote from the book about oh, these guys who want to help other human beings, cucks. Okay. Next time you know you use it, understand at least partly where it came from. The book glorifies colonial wars of conquest and the formation of the Ku Klux Klan, in case you were confused as to whether it was racist enough. And then how does it describe brown people in the book? Well, in the case of the boat of immigrants, they say that they were, of course, hypersexualized. It's another old racist stereotype trope. They say there were everywhere rivers of sperm, streaming over bodies, oozing between breasts and buttocks and thighs and lips and fingers. As usual, they're obsessed with sex from people of different skin colors. And they say it's terrible, Oh, the oozing sperm. Let me tell you more and more about it. Very par for the course for a deep racist like the person who wrote this book and the person who celebrates this book, which is of course Steve Bannon. And finally, let me give you a sense of the main protagonist of this book. As Huffington Post explains, as he talks to the hippie, he will soon kill Cal Goh, that's the hero, explains how the youth went so wrong. That's quote, that scorn of a people for other races. The knowledge that one's own is the best, the triumphant joy at feeling oneself to be part of humanity's finest. None of that had ever filled these youngsters' addled brains. So if you're not a racist and you don't hate the other races, your brain has been addled. You've been cuckolded by people who actually care about other human beings. This is chief advisor to the President of the United States. He nonstop praises this book. And says it's a warning from what might happen. By the way, you know what else happens in the book when the immigrants finally land in France? In their mind, in the book that triggers and was meant to trigger the rest of the world overthrowing the Western powers. Because then they view that as the weakness of white people that they would accept other people and hence they must be overthrown and murdered and killed. Because it is a classic case of projection. Since we murdered, conquered, took over, abused, we assume they must have the same secret plan. So that is why Steve Bannon constantly talks about immigration, not in terms of helping the poor, the needy, but talks about it in terms of an invasion as this book, The Camp of the Saints does. In fact, now let's go back to Bannon in April of 2016, he says, the refugee crisis didn't just happen by happenstance. 
which again is a different kind of mental statement. What do you mean it didn't happen by happenstance? Do you mean that the non-Western world planned to pretend to have a war in Syria and pretended that the civil war was so terrible that it caused four to five million people to be displaced? But actually, it's a secret plot by the brown people to come into France and Germany and America and take it over in their secret invasion. Lunatics, and then he continues in that same statement. These are not war refugees, it's something much more insidious going on. Absolute freaking lunatic. He thinks that there's this giant conspiracy where these immigrants are not actually running from the their war-torn area. What, everybody made that up? It's like the moon landing, it never happened. Everything is just total fantasy. There is no civil war there. Iraq didn't actually have none of this happening. It's actually a plot by the brown people to take over our culture, our beloved white culture. In fact, in June of 2016, he says to, by the way, Jeff Sessions of all people, in another interview, do you believe that elites in this country have the backbone, have the belief in the underlying principles of the Judeo-Christian West? to actually win this war, referring to immigration. In his mind, this is a war and he thinks it's brown people versus white people, Western civilization versus non-Western. And the answer is that you win the war, how do you win a war? Well, as the Camp of the Saints explained, you murder them all. Chief advisor to the President of the United States. I have to confess that Linda Chavez was right. He is shockingly racist. Even I had no idea how racist he was. This is Some media reported a study a year or so back from the New America Foundation that found that in the years since the September 11th attacks, white supremacists and anti-government radicals had killed nearly twice as many people in the United States as Muslim radicals. Researchers said white supremacist violence was an ignored threat that too often goes under the radar. But when the Washington Post runs a headline that says, Trump is quick to tweet about terror and TV, slower on things like the attack in Portland, they aren't ignoring an act, they're transforming it. Terror is something with social significance that requires a social response. The attack in Portland, in which two people were killed defending two brown-skinned teen girls against a white man yelling at them to get out of his country, is somehow different.
It's tiresome to continue noting media double standards, how a white person who kills and attributes it to racial hatred becomes a troubled individual. We wait for police to determine what really provoked the crime, while a Muslim attacker goes straight to page one as the face of evil, emblematic of a danger greater than themselves. U.S. corporate media resist saying people like Jeremy Joseph Christian are part of something larger beyond themselves because that has implications. But he is. So what are they? Heidi Byrick is the leader of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. She joins us now by phone from Georgia. Welcome back to Counterspin, Heidi Byrick. Thanks for having me. Well, the last time we had you on, we talked about how when then-candidate Donald Trump was slow to disavow the Ku Klux Klan, media called it a stumble, uh, as though Trump had misspoken or was confused about the existence of white supremacy and its role in campaigns like his own. Now Donald Trump is president, and Southern Poverty Law Center, I understand, tracked some 900 attacks in his first 10 days in office. Well, no one thinks Trump invented right-wing extremism, but are we seeing maybe a new strain of an old disease? Yeah, I don't think there's any question, but that we are seeing a new strain of an old disease, and it was encouraged certainly by the Trump campaign and the hate incidents that broke out. You know, there's almost 900 of them, like you said, right after the election was the result of the rhetoric in the campaign. I don't think anybody nowadays thinks that you can simply bash a population like Mexicans, as Trump did, or Muslims, and not get a result that ends up in violence in some cases. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in. And we have revitalized white supremacist groups, white supremacist thinking in the mainstream. It's really been a horrible uh, turn of events that's occurred over the last 16 months. Well, I know that you are not in the business of quantifying who is more violent than whom. That's kind of a mugs game and more a deflection from a conversation than anything. But you have suggested that white supremacy is an unusually combustible mental framework. What do you mean by that? What we find again and again, in particular with domestic terrorist acts or heinous hate crimes like what happened in Portland, is that people exposed to white supremacy, people who suck it in, the Dylan Roots of the world, the Jeremy Christians of the world, often go on to commit violent acts. If you just look at the list of domestic terrorist attacks, let's say since Timothy McVeigh in 1995, there's a handful that are the result of people who have radical interpretations of Islam. But the bulk of the incidents involve people who have come to view whites as superior and who view this country as essentially undergoing a race war, and they make these violent acts, they do these things in their minds to save the country, in particular for white people. It's a very insidious mode of thinking that justifies things like genocide, ethnic cleansing. And so it's not surprising that we would get violence out of people who come to believe in these ideas. Well, if media were really concerned about domestic terror attacks per se, it seems that we would hear the name you just mentioned, Tim McVeigh, that we'd be hearing that night and noon, wouldn't we? Because, in fact, that attack was back in 1995, but Tim McVeigh is still sort of a figure in some of these circles. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Jeremy Christian had a like a poem or a tribute to McVeigh on his Facebook page, The Cell of Neo-Nazis. 
which ended up with internecine battles and two men killed that was in Tampa a week and a half ago, they had a picture of McVeigh in their office. And people seem to have forgotten some sort of amnesia after the 9-11 attacks, which of course were horrific. But up to that point, McVeigh's bombing in Oklahoma City was the largest loss of life ever in a domestic terrorist incident. You know, some 180-plus people were killed, including children. And after 9-11, it was as though this type of terrorism, of course, it continued to occur, but it was though it didn't matter, right? All the focus was on the Muslim community, on radical interpretations of Islam, and there was just a reluctance to understand that terrorism comes in more than one form. And of course, it's much easier to point the finger abroad or to community that you can, you know, easily other and say is not part of us, meaning in recent years, the Muslim community. When you talk about white supremacy, you've got to take a hard look at our culture because it is endemic. And it was here from the day this country started, even before actually with English settlers and so on. And there just seems constantly to be a reluctance to treat that kind of terrorism and hate crimes, I might add, as seriously as what is influenced by groups like ISIS or al-Qaeda. Well, let me ask you, state officials and the media following their lead were hesitant to describe massacres in Rwanda as genocide, partly because such terms track national interests, so-called, who's a friend and who's an enemy, and partly because the term carried implications. It carried responsibilities and it called for action. I wonder, what would it mean to recognize, not that white hate violence happens, you know, that moment of discovery should be long over, what would it mean to recognize it as terroristic? What would be the next phase after we see it? If people were to come to that position, government officials in particular, right, then it becomes a policy problem and one that needs to be addressed then we might come to think that more resources should be put at combating this kind of terrorism and not all the focus always be on the Muslim community. We would probably strengthen our hate crime laws, which are just all over the map. There are large classes of people, depending on what state you're in, that are not protected. My home state of uh, Alabama, the LGBT community, has no protections. There's no mandatory reporting. In fact, the Department of Justice itself says the number of hate crimes, this is based on survey data, is about 250,000 a year in the U.S., and the FBI only reports like 5,000. That gap right there between 250,000 and 5,000 shows you how little we seem to care about this issue. And, you know, when it comes to the Trump administration, they can barely get it out of their mouths to condemn these acts of violence. Well, and of course, it isn't just what Trump is not saying and what signals he's sending with that. There is also, as you've just noted, Resource expenditures, you know, in that light, I wonder if you could explain what I understand is happening with the countering violent extremism program. It seems to reflect this White House's uh, priorities. Well, it absolutely does. Um, In the latter years of the Obama administration, they changed countering violent extremism programs, which are basically, I mean, a lot of it's like school counseling, children's programs, things that can help keep people from falling into the hands of extremists. Mm-hmm. And they changed these programs to not just focus on the Muslim community, but to also support groups that were trying to get people out of white supremacy. So there were a bunch of grants awarded a late in the Obama administration to do this work. The checks hadn't been signed. But then after Trump's win, it was crickets. And our understanding from leaked reports is that, in Trump's view, it should be countering violent Islam, 
not countering violent extremism. And it shows once again the Trump administration doesn't seem to care about hate crimes against people of color, but they also seem to ridiculously think that terrorism can't have a white face, right, that it's all coming from ISIS and whatnot. And it's just false. So at this point, we're going to have policies put in place that act like McVeigh didn't exist. Well, I know that you don't support censorship as the way forward. I wonder what are some of the positive actions that you see when you look around that seem to you useful, you know, not just, you know, that make us feel better, and I'm not opposed to feeling better, but that seem to you useful in resisting or in speaking back to white supremacist violence. Sure. Well, I think like in Portland, for example, there was a really positive rally with some 600 people that involved an Islamic center there where people in the city said, we do not support this guy, right, and the kind of hate violence we've just seen. You know, we're seeing things like that across the country. We also have, you know, a lot of mayors and states are taking positive moves on creating hate crimes units, taking hate crime issues more seriously, investing in that, creating welcoming communities. These things are really, really important. And although the Trump administration might not care about this, down the road somebody will. And so that's sort of the best of America. And hopefully sometime shortly we'll have a different election outcome and that will be allowed to flourish, not just at the state and local level, but for the whole country. In our wheels that roll around As we move over the ground And all day it seems we've been in between a past and We are nowhere, and it's now We are nowhere, and it's now In like a ten-minute dream in the passenger seat While the world was flying by I haven't been gone very long But it feels like You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, learn how to effectively fight and report hate in your community. Now, the recent horrific event on a train in Portland have left us all unnerved, and while there is kindness and love in this story, there is also the reminder that this is not an isolated incident. Across the country, hate groups have been rising and growing in their ranks for the last decade, and having Trump in the White House has only emboldened them. If you're feeling helpless and trying to stop the neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and other extremists advocating for violence and white supremacy, you should know there are solid steps and actions you and your community can take. Seven years ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center produced a publication, 10 Ways to Fight Hate, a Community Response Guide. Now, despite its age, it's still extremely relevant. The guide sets out 10 principles for fighting hate, along with a collection of inspiring stories of people who worked to push hate out of their communities. So read it, share it, discuss it, practice it. You can access the direct link in the show notes or search for 10 Ways to Fight Hate, colon, a Community Response Guide at splcenter.org. If you witness or are the victim of a hate crime, first call the authorities, then help Southern Poverty Law Center monitor these incidents by submitting the details in a form on their website at splcenter.org backslash report hate. You can also use the hashtag report hate to share the link to this form with others and call out hate crimes on social media. 
And finally, Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch blog monitors and exposes the activities of the American radical right with articles about the latest news and headlines regarding hate crimes and hate groups, as well as updates on the organization's pending lawsuits. One of the more recent articles highlights the disturbing surge in frequency of noose hate crime incidents, including two incidents in and near the African American History Museum in D.C. Now look, this is not the kind of news most people seek out. This is a dark, vicious side of our country that the privileged among us can easily pretend does not exist. But we have to push past feeling uncomfortable and get to the part where we ask ourselves what we can do to counter the message of hate. So go to splcenter.org to educate yourself and gather the tools we all desperately need to take up the fight. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoflife.com. So if standing up for each other and fighting hate is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about effectively fighting and reporting hate with the Southern Poverty Law Center via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. The murder of two good Samaritans in Portland, Oregon a week ago, unlike many other such episodes, seemed to be a zeitgeist moment, as Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, put it earlier this week. Our current political climate allows far too much room for those who spread bigotry. Violent words can lead to violent acts. The victims had rushed to the defense of two young women being racially taunted, and were stabbed to death while intervening. One of the women was Muslim in a hijab. The killer, an avowed racist, was widely described as a white supremacist. Alleged white supremacist accused of stabbing two good Samaritans to death on a commuter train in Portland. A police say suspected white supremacist, 35-year-old Jeremy Christian, went on an anti-Muslim tirade when three men... Christian was a known white supremacist who had previously shown up to extreme right-wing marches and performed Nazi salutes. Because reports of hate crimes appeared to have risen in tandem with the prominence of the alt-right, and because the alt-right is a vocal advocate of Donald Trump, some were quick to connect the dots, tracing a straight line between Trumpism and the hate crime. Vice President Joe Biden uh, partially putting this at the doorstep of the White House and saying that President Trump's rhetoric is partially to blame for divisions in the country and the rise in racially charged attacks like the one in Portland. As the week rolled on, a debate over free speech flared. A white power march is scheduled for this weekend, and Mayor Wheeler, citing public safety but in apparent indifference to the First Amendment, sought to revoke the organizer's permit, unsuccessfully. Corey Pine, a reporter for Willamette Week in Portland, has been covering these stories. Corey, welcome. Thanks, Bob. Nice to be here. Portland has been caricatured as a kind of multi-culty, vegan, tree-hugging paradise filled with yoga studios and artisanal bong boutiques. Portlandia doesn't 
conjure up violent racism. Well, there's a lot more to the history of Portland. I mean, everything you said is true. All of that stuff is here. But when it was the Oregon Territory, it was whites only. In the 20s, the Klan was very active here. In the 80s and 90s, it was the center of the racist skinhead movement. And a lot of that history has been forgotten. So a week after the killings, what is the mood and and what's the discussion locally? I would say that the mood locally is one of obviously sadness over the loss of life, fear over the rally, which you rightly described as a white power rally that's coming to town, and anger over the circumstances that led to this, the sense of powerlessness that something is descending on this place or even worse, emerging from it, that terrorism has emerged from this community. In the introduction, I referred to the zeitgeist and to the reflex to connect dots. Uh, But I gather from what you're saying, the same dots are being connected in Portland as they are, you know, 3,000 miles away. I would say that locally, one of the first reactions I heard in terms of uh, the coverage I contributed to Willamette Week, and I saw this comment directed at other papers, was, why aren't you calling this terrorism? That's a valid criticism. I think it calls into question some of the racial biases that are used when we discuss attacks like this. How come it's always Islamic terrorism? But the first presumption about this character is that he uh, is a mentally ill loner. There was also undeniably some rather defensive local reaction about this being a racially motivated hate crime. It's an overwhelmingly majority white city, Portland. That's to be expected. But nowhere near the level of distortion about the motives for this crime that has occurred in the national discussion. All right, let's talk about the national discussion, particularly the reaction in the right-wing media who have accused the left in general of misrepresenting the episode. The accused killer was not a Trump voter. He actually backed Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders in the 2016 race and indeed called for violent attacks on Trump supporters during the election. A video from the day before the stabbing shows him denouncing not just Muslims, but also Jews and Christians. Well, he didn't just hate Muslims. He hated everybody. So uh, enough of this white supremacy nonsense. Those are, uh, to put it charitably, cherry-picked details from a long record of hateful white supremacism. This guy, Jeremy Christian, he did express support on his Facebook page a handful of times for Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, In the context of wanting to murder Hillary Clinton, sandwiched by dozens, hundreds more posts espousing anti-Semitism, saying Zionists belong in the ovens, square that with his alleged support for Bernie Sanders. He did say that not just all Christians, but only Christians who failed to follow his vision of true Christianity also belonged in the ovens. What makes those more relevant than his act? For at least two days, he had been seen in this neighborhood harassing black women, making Islamophobic comments. On the train before, he stabbed three men, killing two. He was hassling this young Muslim woman. Uh, He was making comments like, get out of the country, Muslims don't belong here. Why is that less relevant than a handful of Facebook posts? There's another thing to consider. As far as I know, I'm the only journalist who actually interviewed this man before he committed the killings, about a month before. He was at one of these free speech rallies by the same group that's uh, organizing one on June 4th here in Portland. I didn't get much useful information out of him, but I noticed his uh, runic tattoos, which fit with another thing that he posted about often, which was his Vinlander ideology. Vinlander? Are we talking about Nordic supremacy or something? 
Yeah, essentially. It's a callback to some esoteric Nazi ideology that dates to the early 20th century. He is steeped in this stuff. So are we to consider those facts as irrelevant when we call him some kind of Bernie bro? I mean, people are saying that. It's outrageous. Are we to ignore his remarks shouted as soon as he entered the courtroom? Free speech or die, Portland. You got no safe place. This is America. Get out if you don't like free speech. Death to the enemies of America. Leave this country if you hate our freedom. Death to Antifa. Death to Antifa, meaning anti-fascist protesters. I mean, it's absurd to try to paint this man as some kind of leftist or as some kind of agnostic uh, outsider. Yeah, he was friends with skinheads. It appears that he was radicalized in prison. I mean, it's frustrating to see known liars like Mike Cernovich be able to influence the mainstream media discourse in a way that is completely misleading. Can I quote something else that he said on his Facebook page? This is after his fleeting support for Bernie Sanders and after Trump's inauguration in January. He said, if Trump is the next Hitler, then I am joining his SS. Nihilist criminals like me facilitate and run the show if we are talking about recreating the Third Reich. You need unhindered and unhinged thugs for dirty work. Does that sound like any Bernie Sanders supporter you've ever heard? No, it sounds explicitly uh, white supremacist, and it uh, also sounds like the output of extremely disordered mind. So I guess both of those ideas can be true simultaneously. Now, on the subject of disorder, there are these rallies scheduled, and the mayor has come out against them on public safety grounds. Now, I would say that the First Amendment is hospitable to the ugliest speech and to the ugliest demonstrations, as long as they're nonviolent. How do you square the mayor's position with the constitutionally guaranteed right to peaceably assemble? As uncomfortable as it is, I, I understand the mayor's position. Some of the groups organizing this rally, they have a record of violence. They court violence everywhere they go. The headliner of this rally on June 4th is a guy named Kyle Chapman, based stickman, as he's known online, to his alt-right followers. He is famous only for beating people up. First in the April 15th riots in Berkeley, where he broke a stick over a leftist protester's head. So let's consider that. The local group that's invited him, I've witnessed one of its members, a really big guy, about 6'4", calls himself Tiny, flatten a kid half his size. He said it was defensive, but there's a video online you can look and decide for yourself. These groups talk about free speech when they're talking to mainstream reporters, when they're talking to city officials, when they're talking to police. But when they talk to themselves, they talk about collecting bounties for knocking out Antifa teeth. They talk about the looming civil war. They talk about their twisted race politics and their false history. And I'm talking about the way that they portray the Confederacy and slavery and all kinds of issues. There should be no mystery about who these people are and what they represent. And I would invite any journalist, before they describe them as merely a free speech rally, to just go on their Facebook pages, listen to their YouTube videos, see what they're saying to their own crew. Point taken. But as they say, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And assuming they don't incite violence, why shouldn't they be permitted to read from Mein Kampf 
if the police are there to keep any violent behavior at bay. They absolutely have a First Amendment right to read from Mein Kampf in public. The other residents of this city also have a right to counter-protest. This whole free speech debate, when you consider it in the bigger context of these groups traveling around the country, not to their own rallies, but also to anti-Trump rallies, to anti-police brutality rallies, to all sorts of uh, liberal and left-wing causes, bringing weapons, bringing body armor, talking in advance about their violent intentions. I mean, they don't care about free speech. If these people get their way, there won't be free speech for any of us. This is a fascist movement. It's co-opted the language of, you know, liberal concern for free speech. They are twisting it for their own ends. It is not a sincere concern about free speech. But even if they are co-opting our most sacred constitutional rights in order to advance their fascist agenda, the right itself within the framework of peaceful demonstration is immutable. So it's a bit of a a conundrum, no? Or isn't it? You can go online and actually see people making the, the argument that because three men stood up for two young women who were being verbally assaulted and maybe shoved this guy first, that his free speech rights were violated. And if that is where the academic discussion of free speech is going, then I want no part of it. I mean, if these men didn't stand up and put themselves in between this armed lunatic and these vulnerable young women, there would be a lot more people dead. So far today, we've heard clips starting with a ring of fire calling attention to the demand being made of the Trump administration by the white supremacist movement. The Young Turks gave us the shockingly racist synopsis of one of Steve Bannon's favorite books. Counterspin spoke with Heidi Byrick of the Southern Poverty Law Center about white supremacist violence. Our activism for today is in support of the anti-hate efforts of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And finally, we just heard on the media examining the fallout of the Portland killing and the continuing debate over free speech. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. But wait, I've got more in store for you, including another full bonus clip. But I want to set it up first with the one voicemail we're going to have time for today. Hi, this is Marguerite, and I am originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, but now living in Western North Carolina. And for complete disclosure, I am also a black female who recently participated in the racial equity training So I've listened to your most recent episode, the one on understanding Trump voters, as well as the original one, um, the 105.4 you mentioned. Um, And there was a couple things that I was I missed. um, I was really looking for, which is, you know, while I understand why Trump voters are upset that they feel maligned, um, that others are moving ahead of them and cutting in line, um, and they feel that people like Rush Limbaugh are standing up for them and they don't want to be talked down to. We're skipping over the message that these perceptions of theirs aren't actually based in what's really happening. They've had tons of advantages that have been placed in law in the U.S. for people who have been deemed white, especially white men, and that there have been efforts since before the founding of this country 
to separate those of lower socioeconomic status by race in order so that those in power could maintain their power. Um, there's a great story about two indentured servants, one of whom was white and one of whom was black, who both escaped. And when they were caught, the white one had five more years added and the black one was made a indentured servant for life, so the first legal slave in the U.S. And I've listened to your other stories about how to talk to people who have political differences that are different than theirs, but I was missing this kind of fundamental how to start addressing these individuals whose perceptions aren't based in reality or in history, where they feel like people are cutting in line and people aren't aligning them, but they don't recognize the advantages they've had in the United States in the way this country is made for them. There's a really good discussion about why this is all happening. And if you read the book, um, Life My Teacher Taught Me, the last few paragraphs about how history is addressed, chapters actually, it discusses and pretty much predicts this outcome on how we are so separated from our history that we don't even understand how we got to this place. So I understand why they're upset, but their reason they're upset isn't based in fact. And how do we talk to people whose you know, feelings and perceptions aren't based in fact? So that is a great show topic if you can address it. Thank you very much and keep doing what you're doing. So I heard Marguerite's message and first just started making some notes about how I was going to respond, but then remembered that there is someone with a lot more experience and knowledge on this subject, and I should really just let him speak for himself. Uh, now, Marguerite was asking about your sort of everyday run-of-the-mill conservatives who have some misunderstandings about race and social structures in America. She definitely wasn't talking about Nazis and Klan members. And the clip I'm going to play is all about how to argue with Klan members, so I want to explain first why I still think it's a relevant response to the question. First of all, the points that you're going to hear are pretty universal and can be applied to almost any disagreement. And second, there's way more of a connection between the type of white supremacists we often think of and the rest of us than we're usually willing to admit. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan once said that if you want to bake an apple pie from scratch, then you must first invent the universe. And similarly, if you want to have a productive conversation about race and culture in America, you first must understand white supremacy. So I'm going to try to explain it. To be clear, I know that white supremacy makes most of you think of the Klan, and that is definitely part of it, but it is not nearly all of it. Uh, I also know from personal experience that when you think you know the definition of a term and someone tells you that it actually could mean something else or that it does mean something other than what you think it means, the natural instinct is to be defensive. Again, I have been there, so I'm not telling you that you have to change the way you talk or that you even have to agree with this other definition of white supremacy that I'm going to explain, but what I am saying is that you are going to be a more informed person and you will understand what other people mean when they talk much better if you just know that this other definition exists and that it is often used in activist and academic circles, the people who talk about this stuff the most. 
So I'm not here to debate the definition of white supremacy. I don't really care what you call it, but I'm discussing the phenomenon that people are describing when they use that term. So I'm going to describe the non-mainstream definition of white supremacy, and if you want to go back to your old definition in your own life afterwards, then that's fine, but at least you'll know what people are talking about. Okay, so white supremacy describes a cultural system of thought, and that includes clan members, but it goes a lot wider and deeper than that. And we could even talk about this on a worldwide level, but for simplicity, we're just going to focus on the U.S. I, I, I've made up an entirely new analogy. I don't, I don't think anyone has described it this way, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had. Uh, I think that you can think of white supremacy as a giant toxic waste dump in the middle of our cultural town where we all live. It's the garbage that's left over from the last 400 years of cultural attitudes. Uh, many of our worst ideas, slavery and Jim Crow, among many others, have been thrown away into the garbage pile but they're not entirely gone. They're, they're sitting right there. You know, this dump is still in town and it's letting off toxic fumes and leaching political and social poisons into the air and water supply. Now, everyone in our social town here in America lives near this dump. But of course, some people are affected by it more than others. Some live really close to the dump and some are a little further away. Some live upwind and others are downwind. Most importantly, some people take steps to reduce the impact of the dump on them. They use air filters and water filters in their homes and parents teach their kids about the toxic dangers of the dump so they don't go and play in it and so that they understand why the people who go hang out around the dump get poisoned in the first place. Others, though, are just ignorant of the dangers. They don't take the steps to protect themselves, while still others have been told, I, I don't know, I guess the dump is more like a fountain of youth or something, and so they go and actively hang out there and play in the poison because they think it's healthy for them. The point is that everyone who lives in this town, everyone in this country, is at least a little bit poisoned. No matter the precautions you take or the level of awareness about the dangers, it's impossible to live in this town without experiencing at least some of the negative impacts of the toxic material that's floating around in the water and swirling in the air all around you. So that's the analogy, but let's just actually talk about race for a second. Um, you may be thinking that this is an attack on white people for being inherently racist or thinking themselves superior, and it is not. White supremacy is actually, believe it or not, it is something that affects people of all races, just in slightly different ways. Uh, for instance, if you haven't heard of the concept of colorism, let me tell you about it. It is not quite racism, but it is discrimination based on the color of one's skin. It's just slightly different. With colorism, it doesn't matter about your ancestry at all. It only matters about the color of your skin, and in the vast majority of cases, the discrimination is directed at those with darker skin. Now, I had heard of this concept before, but to do my due diligence, I went and looked it up today and came across this example. Get a load of this. The phrase brown paper bag test, also known as a paper bag party, along with the ruler test, 
refers to a ritual once practiced by certain African-American sororities and fraternities who would not let anyone into the group whose skin tone was darker than a paper bag. Along with the paper bag test, guidelines for acceptance among the lighter ranks included the, quote, comb test and, quote, pencil test, which tested the coarseness of one's hair, and the, quote, flashlight test, which tested a person's profile to make sure their features measured up or were close enough to those of the Caucasian race. Now that, my friends, is white supremacy. Black people discriminating against other black people for not being white enough. That's the effect of a poisonous, toxic pile of cultural garbage that seeps its way into all of our lives, not just giving white people an unearned sense of superiority, but also giving everyone else an undeserved sense of inferiority. And sometimes it runs so deep it can turn into self-hatred and intraracial discrimination like I just described, and it's all based on this ridiculous premise that whiter is better. Side note, this is why black pride and white pride are not two equal sides of the same coin. One is a direct response to a system that created a false sense of insecurity among people of color, so they're fighting back against that, trying to reclaim their pride, while the other is working to uphold that same system and maintain the imbalance and discrimination. Okay, but one last note to all well-meaning people— if you find yourself saying anything like, I don't have a racist bone in my body, or I don't see color, then just know that all you're really saying is that you don't understand how any of this works. To grow up in America and be untainted by the systemic culture of white supremacy is basically impossible. What you might want to say instead is that you are fighting against the culture of white supremacy in your own heart and mind, and that you want to work toward a future where color, race, and all of the culture those things imply can be seen and appreciated but not associated with any kind of discrimination. That would mean that you aren't just filtering your water and your air against the toxins seeping out of that dump. You aren't just warning your kids about the dangers. That would mean that you're joining the community cleanup project to dispose of this toxic legacy once and for all so that future residents of this town of ours don't have to be poisoned at all. Okay, now to Marguerite's question. I think the people that she's talking about are the ones in that town who are just ignorant of the poison they've been ingesting, which is almost the worst place to be. You know, if you're poisoned and you know it, then you can do something about it. If you're poisoned, even if only a little, but you don't know it, then you think there's nothing wrong with you and you can't take action. And then if someone comes along and yells at you that you're poisoned— all you're going to think is that you feel fine, you've always felt fine, and that other person must be out of their mind. Now, this has been a very long introduction to this clip, but the point is that white supremacy is a cultural system as well as a continuum that we are all on. Some people are super racist and join the Klan, while on the other side, some are only a little bit racist and are actively trying not to be. But everyone Almost literally every last person is on that spectrum somewhere, regardless of their own race. So don't feel personally attacked. It's not against you. It's not about you. It's about the system. 
And in this clip that we're going to hear, uh, Daryl Davis, he's this black guy who's been having conversations with Klan members for decades, trying to convince them not to be Klan members. And he's got a closet full of Klan robes to prove it. And I think that if Klan members can be talked out of their ways using Daryl's strategy, then those misguided people Marguerite is talking about should be a piece of cake by comparison. Now, finally, this what clip is from a show called in all the conversations Love and Radio. With these Klan guys, what do you think that you do differently that a lot of other people don't? I think what I do differently is I give them a platform to express their views honestly in a safe place where, you know, they're dealing with their alleged enemy, a black person. I give them a space in which they can express their views without fear of attack or retaliation or whatever and allow them to discuss them and, most importantly, have a conversation with them. You don't have to respect what they're saying, but you need to respect their right to say it. Nobody wants to be wrong. We all want to be right. And so if somebody says something to you that goes against you know, what you have believed from the day you were born, but there's a little spark that says that, that piques your curiosity that you think that person might be right, you know, you're going to begin to shift in that direction. It might not be an overnight turnaround, but over time. I've never gone and said, you know what, you need to get out of this organization, you know, you need to stop this nonsense, blah, 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 or I don't go on, on CNN and talk about them and bash them and, and then tell them to send me their robes and hoods. <laughs> it, 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 that doesn't work. So it's like dog fighting. You get a dog that's already predisposed to being mean. And, you know, there's certain breeds, you know, that have that disposition, say a Rottweiler, a uh, pit bull, or what have you. And they take these dogs and they beat these dogs, even beat them even more, make them even meaner. And then they put them in the, uh, in the pit with the, with the other dog to fight. So it's like that. You know, if you have something that's mean and you're mean to it, you're making it meaner. You, you can't beat the meanness out of it. By beating it, you're increasing it. Same thing with hate. You know, if somebody hates you and you're beating on them, you know, they're going to hate you more. It's not like, you know, you, you, I'm going to beat the hate out of you. Uh-uh. But you can drive the hate out with logic and love and respect. Mm-hmm. And that's the example that I have set. And, and for me, it has worked. So if we go down to the list of, like, kind of how to argue. Well, near the top would be gather your information, get an astute knowledge of the other person's side before meeting them. Okay. You know, review it in your head. Be, be as familiar with their position you know, as you are with your own. Okay. So it's lesson one. Yeah. You know, because that way you can pretty much know what to expect and know how to react. You might hear things that frighten you. You might hear things that make you angry or make you sad or hurt you. But these are words. And you go in there because that person has an opposing point of view. And that's what you're looking for. That's why you're there interviewing that person, to to find out why they think that way, why they want to do these things. Well, of course, you're going to hear things that you don't agree with. But if you go in knowing that, then you know, you know what? You need to keep your cool. That's number one. And then number two would be to invite them to have a conversation, not a debate. Have a conversation. You know, what's the distinction? Well, a debate is 
you know, I'm going to make my point and you're going to make your point and we're going to, you know, fight it out verbally. That's a debate, you know, where, where you're going to argue something. That tends to have them get their guard up. You say, hey, you know, I want to have a conversation with you. I want to understand. I want to understand why you feel the way you feel. I, I want you to convince me that I need to change my way of thinking. And I appreciate your sharing your views with me. I'm interested in how you feel. And that's what a lot of people want. They, you know, they want to be heard. They want to, they want to be able to speak their mind freely without fear of retaliation or somebody, you know, beating them over the head for their views or ramming their own views down this person's throat. Okay. So give them that. All right. Number three. What's number three on the list? Number three. Look for commonalities. Okay. And, And you can find that in five minutes. Something. All right. Even with your worst enemy. If you spend 10 minutes with that person, you'll find even more. All right. You're not going to agree on everything, but you'll find something. All right. So find those commonalities. And you build upon those commonalities. Like, for example, I don't like you because you're white and I'm black. So I don't like white people or something. All right. And I don't like anything you stand for. You disgust me. It's because of you. I can't get a job where I'm making as much as you are. And I've got the degree that qualifies me for that job. And you're a high school dropout. And so our our contention is based upon our races. But you're like, um, how do you feel about all these drugs on the street and these meth labs that are popping up and all that kind of stuff? Well, I don't like it. I think, you know, know, the law needs to crack down more on drugs. And and people get drugs too easy and become addicted to to all this stuff very easily. And it's, it's destroying our society. So you say, well, yeah, I agree. I agree, I, I agree 100%. You know, in fact, uh, you might even tell me, you know, that, that your son has started dabbling in drugs or whatever. Uh, and it's, you know, drugs don't discriminate against anybody. The wealthy, the poor, the black, the white, the whatever. Drugs will take you out. So now I'm seeing, you know what? You want the same thing I want. Because I'm seeing that drugs are affecting your family the same way they might affect my family. So now we're in agreement. So let's, let's focus on that. And as we focus more and more and find these more things in common, the things that we have in contrast, such as skin color, begin to matter less and less. That relationship begins to blossom into a friendship. That's number three. Number four, when two enemies, and this applies to anything, it doesn't have to do with, it, it, it can be about race, it can be about anything, any hot topic, abortion, uh, nuclear weapons, the environment, global warming, the war overseas, whatever. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They're talking. They might be yelling and screaming and disagreeing and beating their fists on the table to drive home a point, but at least they're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you want to keep the conversation going. And the more you keep the conversation going, even though you might be disagreeing or yelling and screaming, the more you keep the conversation going, the more commonalities you will eventually find. You'll find yourself on the same page. But when you can't talk to one another, then you're laying the groundwork for trouble. So that's that was four, right? That, that was four, at? yeah. That was so four. What's five? Is there a five? Well, well how many do you need? <laughs> as, many as, as many as you got. Like, I would think... I think one would be be patient. Yeah, patience, absolutely. And, you know, people say uh, with me, 
they're really surprised that I have, have been able to do what I've, what I've done. And they say, you know what, Daryl? I would not have the patience to sit down with those people. I, I just don't have the time for that kind of stuff. You know what? I hate to use a cliche, but patience is a virtue. And you have to have patience. Race relations and the racial animus that is the underlying fabric of our country has been around since the first slaves landed on these shores. And the problem is we have not communicated with one another. And now we, ha- we can find ways to do it. But it's going to take time. And each method, you know, my method works for me. And the reason why my method works for me is because I've taken the time and the patience to learn about the other side. I've read tons of material on, on the Klan, on the neo-Nazis, on white supremacy, on black supremacy. So I know how the mentality works. And, and when I go in there, I tend to be a little more disarming than someone who does not have that background, that knowledge. Because while they may not like me because of what I look like and my skin color, they respect me. And I know, you know, uh, there comes a point in time where you say, okay, enough time. You know, now things have got to change. Yeah. But spend the time first before you start trying to force a change. Spend that time first. And then, you know, if that's not working and you need to legislate something or force something, then fine. You, ha- you have those tools available. That's why we have lawmakers, all right? But the day the law changed to where black people could ride in the front of the bus or not have to give up their seat, the day that law changed did not necessarily change the minds of the white riders. You know, you can, you can legislate behavior, but you can't legislate belief. Patience is what it takes. But patience doesn't mean sitting around on your butt waiting for something to happen. You know, be proactive. And don't just sit around and talk with your friends who believe the way you do. Invite other people who have differences of opinion. Invite them to your meeting, to your table. Learn from them. Because while you are actively learning about somebody else, at the same time, you are passively teaching them about yourself. And I can tell you right now, that's a, I'm going to say that again. That sounds so good. While you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. Again, that clip was from a show called Love and Radio. They're a member of the Radiotopia Network, and that's sort of recent, but I've actually been listening to them for more than a decade. I don't remember when I found them originally, but I used to listen to them back when I was a FedEx driver, and I quit that job in 2006. Uh, That clip is from their recent episode called How to Argue, but that was part two, and you should really hear both part one and part two. Uh, Love and Radio is full of lots of amazing stuff, a lot of strange stuff and a lot of amazingly strange stuff. So not everything they do is going to suit everyone's taste, but I am recommending these two episodes as strongly as I have ever recommended anything on this show. Uh, Part one is titled The Silver Dollar, and they reposted it along with part two, How to Argue. So go listen to those now. And finally, just a note to the small percentage of you who would consider panicking next week when the show is late, don't panic. Uh, I've got some travel to do, and I'm planning on putting out uh, the next show on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. So it'll be late, but at least it won't be a rerun. So look forward to that.
As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Maybe start by telling podcast newbies that there's an easy-to-use best-of-the-left smartphone app to get them started. And please keep leaving us great reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help other people find the show. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder